Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Doctor Dialogue Podcast. I'm your host, L.A. Londi. With me, as always, is the other host, J. Scott Harden. Uh, we're coming to you, oh, it's been a while since our last podcast, and it is already March 6th, 2021. Much is going on in the world, and uh, we're here with a specific topic. Um, we're going to be discussing the idea of conservatism um, and taking a look at some of its past, present, and what could potentially be in store for the future of this particular movement. Um, we'll be talking some about the Republican Party, obviously, in regard to this. I'm sure we'll also be mentioning the Democrats in this. Um, but it should be an interesting discussion, given the fact that we, as we've said to all of our many listeners, um, but we will really write it here in case we have any new listeners, that um, the Up Your Dialogue podcast is one where we have two different lenses, two different um, paths. Um, both Jay Scott and I are um, longtime friends, uh, previous co-workers, and after many of discussions between the two of us, we understood that even though Jay Scott and I have different paths, come from different perspectives, different religious views, different worldviews, different lenses that we see the world through. We're able to have discussions, we're able to have dialogues, able to have communication, able to talk to each other without killing each other, without striking each other, without character assassination, um, without all the things that we see in our media today, in um, our culture, actually, society. Not able to talk anymore, not able to have a discussion, and therefore, uh, not only is our culture broken, society broken, government's broken, much of what we see is broken today in our world. And it's a big part of it has to do, we believe, with inability to communicate, to see another side, to see another point of view, that type of thing. So uh, this should be an interesting topic as we talk about the conservative movement, not only because of the recent elections, uh, the recent presidential election, recent senatorial elections, um, what's going on with the Republicans and the Democrats, what's going on in the culture um, with its move to a more open and liberal society. Um, but also because Jay Scott uh, is what he calls himself a ditch and switcher, uh, someone who was fairly hard left back in the day. Um, and myself, who's lifelong conservative, lifelong Republican. Um, interestingly enough, though, I did not vote for Donald Trump in the 2016 election, and Jay Scott did as he made his move to the right. Um, he saw some things back then that actually I didn't even have, a, that I saw but not didn't have full comprehension of because of his closeness with the left. Um, so uh, we might have two different um, ideas of what conservative is, what being a conservative is, or what conservatism is, or its history, or its, um, its future, or its current situation. Uh, but it should be an interesting discussion because of the uh, differences in how uh, Jay Scott and myself have come across our political views, um, whether they're past, present, or future, um, and even our views in society in general, um, and how our current political and either conservative, liberal views, left of center, right of center, however they might um, impact us currently, and how they're going to take us into the future, um, which I can't remember a time in my lifetime where it's been as murky as it is now as far as what direction things are heading in. With that introduction aside, uh, we'll send it over to Jay Scott with some initial comments. Everybody, welcome back to Up Your Dialogues. We are recording this on Saturday, March 6th, and uh, I'm glad that we're back in, in, in the saddle on it. Really, if there has been... Um, some delay in some of the episode. This, I will tell our viewers, is mainly on me. LA has been ready to roll. 
I have been involved with the uh, completing my first uh, novel, a fiction work, the first draft of it, which is done. It's called The Preserve, and uh, it's about the world of birds, fictionally, and uh, the evils of technology, uh, problems in knowing what is real from what is not. And so I've been very intensely busy finishing this book. Um, it's really, it's about five or 600 pages. So it has taken me about four years. And in recent months, I've been focusing on that. Meanwhile, in the world, things have been going on. A lot of things have been happening since our previous other dialogue podcasts. Um, most notably, uh, this 2020 election um, and where a place where we find ourselves uh, half believing in the results and half uh, not too sure about the results of the election. And certain amount of um, chaos has ensued. So the word of the day for me on March 6th is uh, open borders. Um, I live in Arizona, a state that borders Mexico. And I see that we are allowing a, a great many surges of migrants through the border, either through catch and release or just letting them go without, uh, without discussion, including um, minors, unaccompanied minors. In large numbers, by which I mean uh, multiple thousands, thousands a day along the border. So we seem to have trouble in the sense that we can keep our borders open, but we have a wall and a protected um, Capitol building in Washington, D.C. So open the borders of the country and close the borders of our national legislature. Seems to be the order of the day. Uh, that's where we're at, among other topics, round in about a March 6th. So I'll let I'll let LA kick off the, the topic of conservatism, uh, past, current, and future. And uh, and then we'll see what, what can be added to the discussion and explore. LA is right. I had a kind of, you know, I was a card-carrying member of Democratic Party or liberalism in general. I have a, an academic background, uh, which was, uh, at least in its intent, strongly influenced by liberal politics and culture. And so it didn't occur to me until, oh, plus or minus about 10 years ago, that something new was coming to liberalism. And as L.A. noted, um, when I saw what was coming, I jumped ship and became a ditch and switcher, um, really a little bit before 2016. But by 2016, I was, uh, I was all in um, in trying to stop the liberal juggernaut. Uh, in particular, I'll call out critical race theory, intersectionality, and the woke culture. Saw it coming a little bit ahead of schedule, did what I could in a personal and anecdotal way, uh, and here we are under the presidency of one Joe Biden. So, L.A., this is uh, back to you at that point. All right. Thank you, sir. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, about conservatism. And um, in doing so, Jay Scott brought up some things in his introduction um, that I think are topics that we talk about today. We talk about open borders. Uh, we talk about the, the ideas of um, a nation. What is a nation? Um, what kind of government should a nation have? Uh, what kind of values should a nation have? Um, we come across words such as individualism, um, socialism, uh, relativism, exceptionalism. Uh, there's a lot of isms, communism, um, universalism, lots of isms that you may hear thrown around at different times and discussions, I find a lot of times people don't know or have a really good grasp of what these words mean, where they come from, why they're important. Um, Jay Scott brings up uh, talking about open borders or talking about immigration and how it does seem that um, we're moving toward more of an open borders type of 
uh, action while we gate off or restrict off the people's house, which seems backwards to a conservative idea. Conservative idea being a nation has borders, has to have borders or it can't succeed. Historically, I think this is proven to be true. Um, we don't draw the lines, uh, the, the invisible lines, sometimes visible if there is a wall, fence, something like that. But we don't have those things for no reason. And, you know, when we fight against walls or building a wall or, or not having a wall or who's legal and who's legal and all these different things, why does it matter? Who, who cares? about in that stuff. Um, that's when we're, that's when we start talking about worldview. We start talking about values, um, how you're going to set up those values, how you're going to form a government, uh, whether that government's going to be limited or not. And, uh, if so, how limited all those things. So for me, I didn't really care about any of those things. Um, until I left high school and went into the military. And shortly after I did that, I got sent out to California and this is back in, um, maybe 1991, 1992 type time frame uh, to kind of put a date on myself there. Um, and when I turned on the radio out there, I heard a guy and his name was Rush Limbaugh. So Rush Limbaugh has been in the news uh, recently because of his unfortunate demise. Uh, Rush Limbaugh passed away not too long ago. And many of those people who say that they're conservative um, can say that at some point in time, they probably listened to or read a book by, by Rush Limbaugh. Um, I pretty much spent my 20s listening to Rush Limbaugh on the radio before he actually went into syndication uh, when he was local out, um, or at least regionally syndicated um, out in the California area that I lived in. And that's kind of where I learned about this idea of conservatism. Um, not a lot of people were saying the things that he said at the time. He wrote uh, a book called The Way Things Ought to Be. That was his first book, which I purchased and read and still have in my library. Um, and in the book, it was the first time I read about things like um, the conservative ideals, um, you know, American traditions, republicanism, uh, capitalism, socialism, all the isms, um, you know, in some way, shape or form are covered in, in that book and in, and in what he said every day. And his basic take was, um, you know, the country's run by individualism. It's a pro-capitalist, pro-business, pro um, individual, pick yourself up by your bootstraps type mentality. It's not the group think. The um, it takes a village uh, idea promoted by the, by Hillary Clinton and the left during the later '90s when um, or mid mid '90s uh, when Rush Limbaugh really became prominent because of his stances on things like this. Um, after the Reagan years, we got into the Clinton years, and and the country started to slowly move a little bit. Um, and it's been moving at different speeds ever since. Uh, to the left, to the right, to the left, to the right, left to center, right to center, had the Bush years, um, had the Obama years. But what Jay Scott has pointed out is um, an extreme move to the left that he saw coming uh, prior to the 2016 election. And, and we're living in that now, not only politically, but Culturally, we're living in um, a time where we have an extreme move to the radical left in politics and, and moving to the left in culture. And so in this episode, we're going to kind of talk about uh, what conservatism means, um, where it comes from, where it is now and where it's going and how it's impacted by society and culture, uh, the politics of the day that type of thing. But I mentioned Rush Limbaugh in the in, uh, in the start of all this because for me, that's where all this started. I think Jay Scott's going to have a very different origin. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to hear uh, some of the origins of conservatism for him um, and how he reacted to it uh, in his early days uh, in, in a different way than I did. But when I was forming my 
opinions on things and my understanding of the world, both theologically, philosophically, and politically, um, in culture and politics, Rush Limbaugh was a big part of that. And not just because, uh, you know, I grew up in a Christian home or in a church going home and I didn't know any better. I don't think that was the case. I've read a lot of different things by a lot of different people um, around about that time. But I just have to say that um, the things you found with Rush in his book and, and what he said just made sense. They, they just seemed like common sense. Um, you know, American American traditions, things that we were proud of as far as the country and the flag, uh, the ideas of the founders, Judeo-Christian values, uh, strong national defense, American exceptionalism, um, and the idea that basically America is the people. It's, you know, it's the people, individuals make up the country and individuals have to have liberty. They have to have freedom. Uh, they're not to be dependent on governments. They're not to be um, giving away their liberties and their freedoms to for uh, government to, to enlarge government. Um, and every time that the government got larger, Rush spoke out against that, and he said, "These aren't the way. This is not the way that things ought to be." And so um, I just kind of wanted to headline him uh, in kind of a remembrance of him as uh, we talk about this topic tonight. And um, I'll turn it over to uh, Jay Scotland and talk a little bit about uh, his interminglings and uh, run-ins with this idea of conservatism and maybe a little bit of what it means to him. Yeah, conservatism is, you know, I am of the same generation as L.A. And I, too, wasn't thinking very um, significantly about politics in high school. And I think that's pretty interesting. When I went to college, I too became exposed to politics. I remember in high school being tired of the lengthy presidency of Ronald Reagan, uh, and then followed by another four years of a Republican. And I just thought, well, these people are too old. It's old school. It's old news. Uh, you know, communism is gone. What is there left to talk about? Let's get into the let's get into some of the ideas. And I took quite a lot of political science and history uh, courses in college. And I'll pluck this out from the political science uh, exposure that I had, which is that politics exists on a kind of a spectrum. And so you could kind of imagine this with me, but let's say you're in the center of a line. And what does it really mean to be in the center? Well, you can see things either way. You're a little bit tolerant of both sides. Uh, multiple points of view have some merit. You're not big into radical change of any kind, a, a sort of a steady as she goes, if you can imagine the center like that. As you proceed away from the center toward your left, you're entering the territory of uh, liberalism. In America, we have the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has changed over the years historically, and I hope we'll get a chance to talk about that more. But suffice it to say at the moment that the Democratic Party that in the United States that I was familiar with growing up uh, or even previous to 2000 or 2010 or so, uh, is different than the Liberal Party in 2020, 2021. Um, and the goalposts have significantly shifted. But in general, you could you could have said that the Liberals believed in a larger government. Um, I like this quote from Reagan that I remember, which is, I have 10 words to tell the American people. I'm here from the U.S. government. I'm, I'm from the U.S. government, and I'm here to help you. Um, and for liberals, that is a true statement and usually has been, at least, let's say, in the last hundred years. This is a branch of American political spectrum that is often believed that government is the driver of solutions, in particular social solutions. Things like the social programs under FDR to expand insurance or unemployment benefits 
or in the case of unionization of workers, um, or as you go then uh, down to someone like uh, Lyndon Johnson, you have your war on poverty and your civil rights reform. Um, a kind of expanding of the base of the vote in general. So uh, Democrat president like uh, Woodrow Wilson would have facilitated the passage of the 19th Amendment, 1920, women's right to vote, for example. And so you see them attempting to be more inclusive of more Americans, be it uh, Blacks or women, uh, or later um, in our century, this century, it became uh, gays. And now under President Biden, you see the goalpost shift again to transgender, the um, LGBTQIA plus um, in form of inclusion, at least that's what it is on paper. It was intended historically uh, to be more inclusive. As you branch out farther to the left, uh, you encounter things like socialism. And this is a popular uh, kind of hybrid form of government in many countries, for example, in Europe uh, and elsewhere um, in the world, such as uh, our neighbor, Canada, for example. And here you have things like universal health care, certain state control over critical production, uh, what Marx would have called the, the mode of production. As you go farther to the left, as you get farther away from the center, it becomes more radical. Uh, and among the more radical depths that it leads to is communism. So here you have a huge example in the case of uh, USSR. Uh, after the Second Russian uh, Revolution of 1917, their withdrawal from World War One, and their implementation of a kind of radical socialist uh, perspective where the government controls all the mode of production and they tell you where to work uh, or if you can, and they control a huge amount of the aspects of your personal life and your professional life. Uh, instead of going shopping, you get vouchers. And if they have the food by the time you get there, then you can use your voucher for a certain quota. If not, then the government hasn't authorized it. So you don't get anything, no matter how many pieces of paper you have. Um, of course, there was a black market. So if you had means to access extra money from some location, you could get certain things in that way. Deepest branch on the left, even beyond uh, communism, I would consider to be uh, anarchy. Anarchism. And this has a strong uh, political tendency in Europe, too, where you don't want to have any form of government whatsoever. And it's basically a kind of nihilistic burn everything down, every man for himself. Most important to destroy government structures, including its leaders. So here you enter the world like uh, uh, various assassinations, uh, for example, of the type that, uh, that killed the Archduke of Austria and kicked off World War One. A good example, but by far the, from the only. Uh, now, back to the center again. We've been off the deep end on the left. Let's, what does it look like when you look to the right? You have, are entering the area in American politics, which we call conservatism. Generally, that's represented by the Republican Party. And the Republican Party usually has a platform of certain values. And I'm going to talk about a couple of those. But they believe in, in certain concepts. Um, in particular, I'll single out the concept of holding sacred the United States Constitution. Uh, including the amendments, um, especially, you know, the Bill of Rights. And so you will discuss some of what those are. But there are things like, for the moment, the freedom of speech, uh, freedom to assemble, uh, your freedom of religion, right to bear arms, and so forth. Um, when you get a little bit farther out, then you have a different kind of blend of conservatism, uh, which is less standard. Well, we'll keep the libertarians in mind. These are people who believe in in the uh, a very small government. So in a modern example, you could think of someone like Rand Paul, uh, or in intellectual life, you could think of someone like Ayn Rand. Uh, some of you may have read that. 
Fountainhead and other books. Um, but beyond that, beyond that branch is kind of what I would call reactionary. And as opposed to many tenets of conservatism, which say we want to, in general, preserve things as they are, especially the good and important parts, reactionaries will want to reset to somewhere in the past and perhaps a distant past. Uh, and the view is, you know, to turn back the tables, oh, 10 years ago, but also 50 or 100 or 1,000. And so you can see the farther back they want to reset the bar, the less mainstream it is. And finally, uh, off the deepest end of conservatism, to the right, beyond conservatism, this isn't an American thing, um, but you get into the realm of fascism. So to that extreme, again, you have government control over most or all aspects of your personal and professional life. So either way you go, when you hit the radical extremes of the political spectrum, you have huge government controlling your every action. They tell you what you're going to think, certainly how you're going to vote. That's not an open election, but you check the Hitler box or, if needed, the Stalin box. And if you don't, you have problems such as, uh, you know, up to and including being killed. So most of the extremes are foreign to the American political experience, which is, you know, relatively moderately liberal through relatively moderate conservative. At least that's the way it's been here in this country traditionally and for quite some time in its history. 2021 doesn't feel very um, center-based or it doesn't feel within the confines of the usual historical liberalism or conservatism. Now we've gone rampant. So where did I first stumble upon conservatism? Well, I studied it at university, but in my case, it's more anecdotal. So if I was had liberal leanings as a youth, uh, I had one area that stuck with me that was not liberal. Um, and I've had a feeling about this since I was a boy. Uh, we'll tell the viewers that when I was a child, my sibling, my brother, died. And so we were six and three, I being the elder of the two had leukemia and he died. And then about a year later or so, for whatever reason, I overheard a conversation in which my mother was uh, telling somebody that she had an abortion after that. Very personal stuff. And I'm not one to criticize uh, parents. I don't really believe in deep, profound anger lashing out at a parent. It's just not my way. Uh, LA may go back to some biblical references with Moses on this, but either way, it's not my way. So I never did have this conversation with her. Later in life, she died. And so I feel comfortable about sharing my view because I'm the, the one that's alive. And when I found out about this abortion, I was angry. I had lost a sibling, and I thought to myself, this was my chance for another sibling. It was a very selfish view. The seven-year-old Jay Scott had a very selfish view of it. Didn't understand a great many things, but what, one thing that stuck with me was that there was a, a living creature, part of my family, who was dead. And I learned over time that this wasn't just a feeling of mine personally. Conservatives traditionally have not believed in abortion, in particular unrestricted abortion. So that was my first little prompt into the world of conservatism. It was personal. I don't like the idea of uh, killing creatures, uh, particularly ones that don't have it coming. So over the years, I tried to expand on that and say, well, maybe it was just a Jay Scott thing, but really, why don't we have a look at something like the definition of life in a dictionary? And uh, I've studied different dictionaries, but over the years I, ha I had a look and the one I have pulled up tonight is Merriam-Webster. Uh, you could go to merriam-webster.com and type in the word life and you'll see the same thing I do. And it gives you a kind of a list of the definitions of life that have been agreed upon, such as definition one, 1A, the quality that distinguishes a vital and functional being from a dead body. 
Uh, and the list goes on, a principle or force that is considered to underlie the distinctive quality of animate beings and or organismic state characterized by capacity for metabolism, in particular growth, reaction to stimuli, and reproduction, uh, by which they don't, scientists don't necessarily mean sexual reproduction, they mean the division and reproduction on a cellular level, a sequence of physical and mental experiences that make up existence, one or more aspects of the prospect of living, Spiritual existence, I'm sure LA will tell us about that. A spiritual existence transcending physical death, the period from birth to death, a specific phase of early existence, the period from an event until death, a sentence of imprisonment for the remainder of a convict's life, a way or manner of living, vital or living being, animating or shaping force or principle, spirit, animation, form or pattern of something existing in reality, period of duration, physical period of existence, uh, living beings, something that engages in human activity, animate activity or movement, activities in a given area or time, uh, opportunity for continued viability. All these definitions of life, you don't, my point is that you don't have to be a Christian to follow the list. And if you look at, uh, at the point of contact between the sperm and the egg of human beings, something may be in fact formed when this happens. And it's a thing that uh, if you, if left to its own devices, it would survive. In other words, uh, it doesn't typically just die because it dies. It's natural for it to live inside the womb, of course. But there's a life form in there. Uh, later, people will quiver over if it felt pain or does it have a heartbeat or what trimester and all this other stuff. But when you look at the definition of life, the cells are reproducing. It has a certain animation. There's movement. It grows. Anybody who's ever either been pregnant or has children will appreciate the fact that it grows. Um, and all the definitions were fit for me when I looked at the definition of life. And so I realized it wasn't just me. Uh, later, I realized it didn't even have to be persons of religious belief. It's pretty direct. And I consider um, an obligation on the part of the living to see that other living forms are not extinguished in their life. And so I guess to answer LA's question, that, that, that understanding of abortion and reviewing what does life mean uh, always gave me this little foot in the door of conservatism despite my academic uh, liberal left-leaning training uh, at the university which was extensive i always had this foot in the door that said well i can buy you know greater access uh, rights for people greater inclusiveness uh social reforms, help the poor, make a union if there are abuses, all these lists of liberal things I could sign off on, but I never ever was able to figure out how to sign off on uh, on the, uh, the problem of abortion, including the problem of abortion in America and the problem of abortion in my own personal life. So there you go, LA, there's your answer to that. Uh, before I comment further, I'd like to everyone to hear the sound of conservatism, at least in the early 90s, early to mid 90s for me. We're gonna miss. Um, we're gonna miss Rush. I'm gonna miss that. I'm sure the show will probably live on in some some sort or fashion with someone else uh, being on the other side of that microphone. But uh, it won't be the same without without Rush. Um, without being able to hear Rush at uh, when you either turn on the radio or these days um, listen on the internet or podcasts or however it is that you were able to pick them up. So I uh, just wanted to play a little bit of that and. Uh, memory of, of rush um some interesting points from jay scott especially on the topic of uh, uh we heard some words uh like fascism um, um and then the topic of abortion um fascism is probably one of the words that is most misunderstood nowadays i think 
people throw that around. I hear it on the right. I hear it on the left. I hear people on the right calling people on the left fascists. I hear people on the left calling people on the right fascists. Donald Trump's a fascist. Um, let's get back to Merriam-Webster on, on the definitions. I think it's probably good that we have some definitions of what words actually mean. Um, one of the things Rush Limbaugh said uh, that I remember early on was that words mean things. Words have meaning. Um, and in this day and age, it seems like we can just kind of redefine words into whatever we want them to mean. But that's one of the things that gets us into trouble. Fascism is certainly one of the, one of those words for sure. Uh, Merriam-Webster says it's a political philosophy, movement, or regime that exalts nation and often race above the individual, and that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a di- dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation, enforceable suppression of opposition. Now, I don't know about all the listeners out there in listener land, but um, it doesn't sound anything like what would be to the right of any conservatism that I know of. Um, maybe the exaltation of a nation, maybe because some people think that conservatism puts the nation first in some way, uh, like America first, uh, heavily you know, make America great again, the MAGA thing uh, in the Trump years, um, but centralized government, di- dictatorial leaders, uh, race above the individual, and conservatism to me has always been individual based. Um, you know, it's we the people, right? It's we the we the people individually, not we the people collectively. And I think that that's something that we're kind of getting messed up in our current way of thinking. Is it we the people from an individual perspective that make the country great? Or is it we the people from a collective perspective that make the country great? And the famous words of Barack Obama, you didn't build that. Uh, it wasn't you that built that business. It wasn't you that, uh, that had that idea, that accomplished something. It was the collective around you that allowed you to do that. Um, and that's a big difference between what is seen as conservatism versus liberalism today. Although I don't even think what we're seeing when we say liberal or liberalism is even what many Democrat voters grew up with, if you're my age or Jay Scott's age or older, um, you know, what does that word even mean? You know, we talk about conservatism and, and we're, we're going to get more into that specifically, but, you know, we just defined fascism and fascism by definition doesn't seem to be the word that we throw around. What about liberalism? Um, what, uh, Merriam-Webster on liber- liberalism. We've got a few points here, a few more points on liberalism than we did uh, fascism. Uh, political philosophy based on belief in progress, the essential goodness of the human race, the autonomy of the individual, the autonomy of the individual, and standing for the protection of political and civil liberties. Um, does that sound like liberalism uh, today? Does that sound like uh, the Democratic Party platform today? Specifically, says Merriam-Webster, such a philosophy that considers government as a crucial instrument for amelioration of social inequities. Um, such as those involving race, gender, or class. Now, here in point C of uh, of the of the uh, Merriam-Webster, we got a little bit more of a touch about um, the current state of liberalism, um, whether it be um, in ec- social inequities, um, the government as a crucial instrument for the amelioration of social inequities. Um, so, how do you combine point C and point uh, point C A and Point C, B. Uh, so it's almost like Webster is trying to narrow down the main point. So a political philosophy based on belief in progress, 
the essential goodness of the human race and the autonomy of the individual in standing for the protection of political and civil liberties, specifically such as a philosophy that considers government as a crucial instrument for the amelioration of social inequity. So is liberalism, old school liberalism, I see it as something more around the first part of the definition and less concerned about the second part of the definition. Wherein today, I think you have uh, a more radical view that sees the second part of the definition um, kind of all encompassing over the first part to where the first part almost doesn't even exist. Because if I talked about um, the goodness of the human race and a belief in progress, maybe you're more like Steven Pinker there, where um, you know this belief in progress and the goodness of the human race is what the ultimate end is. But standing for the protection of political and civil liberties, yeah, not so much. Not so much nowadays. Um, so liberalism, more of the Steven Pinker view of things, uh, the goodness of the human race, and that's what progress is going to lead us to. Um, well, this is, uh, this is not in agreement with a biblical understanding or a biblical worldview. This is something you're going to get from my side of the uh, Up Your Dialogue um, as someone who's versed in um, theology and that type of thing. Uh, and, you know, a Christian. Um, the Bible says that the human race is inherently bad, uh, that the natural state of man is, is evil, is not good. And conservatism, I think, is much of it based on the Judeo-Christian thinking as at least the American version or the one that most of the, the, the version that most of the people that listen to this podcast are going to be understanding because this is what you've lived unless you're from another country. Um, and so we start off with a problem of worldview. And I think most things go back to a problematic worldview. Um, most of the people on the left have their um, isms upside down because they have their worldview upside down. Uh, human beings are not um, essentially good. The human race is not essentially good.
So the founding fathers understood this at its basic core, that human beings aren't naturally good. And so I think the idea that even the old standard of liberalism goes against not only a biblical worldview, but goes against the worldview at the time of the founding fathers that set up many of these checks and balances to keep us from really tearing our own nation down, destroying ourselves. You've got the three branches of government, and you've got lots of checks and balances within the framework of the Constitution, uh, because they understood this at a, at a basic level. Uh, the left today, and if you want to call it liberalism, if you want to call it uh, radicalism, uh, socialism, whatever ism you want to put on whatever the left is today, um, it has a basic error that human beings are good, and if you just give them the right power, if you just give them um, the right amount of money or the right amount of um, institutional growth, uh, the right amount of control over people, that these good people will do really good things. I'm to expect that someone like Kamala Harris or Nancy Pelosi, uh, these people just have natural good intentions for what they do. Same thing on the right. I'm supposed to expect that people like Mitch McConnell uh, or Kevin McCarthy or, or, any, or these people that are in charge are doing the things that they're doing for the good of humans, for, for the betterment of society, at, you know, at, at almost all times. When, when the opposite is actually true. If you have a what I think is a proper worldview, which is a biblical worldview, or even if you're not a Bible-believing person, if you're not a Christian and you just are forming your worldview however you do, and maybe Jay Scott will, will comment on how his worldview fits into this uh, as a, a, um, an agnostic. Uh, but even if you, and from my perspective, even if you're not a Christian or you don't have a biblical worldview, uh, something that Jay Scott brings up in the abortion issue, he doesn't have to be a Christian to be against abortion. And that's because he can still have a worldview that says murder is wrong. Now, what did we do with abortion? Well, we changed the argument because we can, you know, we as progressives can can change words to mean whatever we want them to mean in the time. Uh, and so we made abortion into a choice argument, into a uh, human rights argument, uh, a woman's rights argument, a woman's right to choose. Uh, we, we we no longer talk about life. So J. Scott's bringing up all these ideas about life, but the left argument really doesn't have anything to do with the life of the infant and, and even or of the fetus. And they get into all these ideas of when life begins and all this kind of stuff, but it's really not part of the, the overarching argument. Um, the argument is that the woman can do whatever she wants with her body because she's autonomous and she is... Uh, you know, the ruler of herself, nothing is outside of it. Nothing is transcendent. Uh, another word that Jay Scott threw out there, transcendent, as he was reading the definition of uh, life. So we have these definitions. We have these words that mean things um, that need to mean, that need to be meaningful. Um, and Jay Scott's able to look at these words. And even though he might have a different worldview as me, he can see that in these words, they need to have meaning and meaning is important. And we can't just make things up as we go. We can't just set whatever standard we want um, as we go as human beings. And the reason we can't do that is because human beings are not naturally well-intentioned. They're not good, which brings us to a question of what good even is. How do you even define that word? Um, that goes down another topic for another discussion, possibly for another podcast. But suffice it to say that whether you start out with a worldview about the origin of people and the goodness of people or the, or the evil intentions of people um, has an impact on your political philosophy on whether 
you are a conservative or whether you are a liberal, uh, even by the old school definitions of the words. So Ellie has brought up a number of helpful points on this. To go back to the one about fascism, a word that is commonly used today, and I don't recall having been commonly used during my lifetime before this day and age. Um, the only thing I'll add to it is the end of that definition on fascism says, as part of the definition, came to prominence in early 20th century Europe. So this would be your Mussolini and your Adolf Hitler, is what they mean, and other parties in Europe too. Uh, in that end, an ultra-nationalist um, form, which could also be uh, racist in some cases, uh, certainly in the Nazi case. And so fascism, my point being is that it's a thing that is, like communism, somewhat foreign to the American tradition. So there have been certain fascists and certain communists in American history, but they're rare, they're minor, and they're fringe. They're not part of the mainstream political discussion previously in American history. Now, you don't like somebody and he's a fascist. Somebody cuts you off on the road and that person's a fascist. Uh, there was a, I have been fairly active on Twitter on the Up Your Dialogue account. And you can find me at J. Scott Harden. And occasionally I dip my toe into the political fray, although I try not to do it overly often because it's a pretty wild ride. But one time I did was after the, the second acquittal of President, former President Trump, Jim Jordan had sent off a tweet, Jordan being a conservative member of Congress, a representative from Ohio, uh, and he's a Trump ally politically, saying that, you know, he was opposed to the impeachment of Donald Trump in regard to the insurrection of January 6th, because he didn't think it was much of an insurrection, and he didn't think Trump called for violence. In fact, he cited that Trump said we had to go to the Capitol peacefully, the word that Trump used in the speech beforehand of this. And his point was that this is a kind of act of a riotous act of the type that we've seen for months and throughout 2020 in the United States in cities all over the country. You get places like the Portland uh, Federal Courthouse attacked for months, daily or nightly rather, uh, or the, the Minneapolis or the Phoenix, uh, Arizona police headquarters and so on and so forth. Really, uh, by some standards, the riot in Washington, D.C. on January 6th was something like riot number 1,401 within the last eight months. And where were the Democrats during the first 1,400 riots? Well, by and large, they let it go to the cost of human life and property and attacks on government buildings and personnel. Now, all of a sudden, they're incensed. So I hopped on this and said, well, you make a good point, uh, Jim Jordan. I agree. At which point, this tweet of mine saying that drew the attention of, of Ruben Gallego, a congressman from Arizona, my home state, 7th District, a Democrat, who said that uh, the burning, uh, the attack on the Capitol building in D.C. wasn't anything like, you know, attacks on, on uh, retail stores and so forth in America, to which I told Congressman Gallego, with respect, the federal courthouse in Portland, my hometown, or the attack on the Phoenix police headquarters are not shopping malls. Federal and state government buildings have been attacked throughout 2020 all over this country, and the crowd on Twitter went wild. I don't know if it was any good for epic dialogue, but we had something over 100,000 points of contact on this tweet, including a barrage of responses. And what I'll take away from the responses, mostly I think Galago fans or or a left, left-leaning folk, was that I was a Nazi, a racist, an insurrectionist, a member of QAnon. Um, and the most stunning of the comments, in my view, was that I had personally assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. 
1968, and they seemed convinced about that. They said they intended to call the the uh, bosses and leadership of Up Your Dialogue and see to it that I was deplatformed off of that podcast, which I thought was funny too. This is where I want to insert my laugh track because they can contact me in my role of co-host and co-owner of this uh, podcast. Or if they don't like that, then they can talk to my friend L.A., who's the other guy on the podcast, and I suspect they'll get a no particular kind quarter from there either. So I've been 100,000 times, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of times I've been called a Nazi. For my support of the fact that President Trump said that we should go to the Capitol building peacefully, and that I didn't, I agreed with Jordan that this didn't account for an insurrective, an insurrection. Uh, also, I'm pleased to note that a sufficient number of Republican senators also viewed it that way, or else we would have had a, a convicted a president convicted on the charges. So fascism isn't something Americans know that much about. If you think a fascist act is three people going up to, you know, as part of a small mob to the Capitol and dying of heart attacks on their way up the stairs, uh, there was the business about the police officer being killed with a fire hydrant. In my understanding, the body's been cremated. The cause of death is still not declared. And he went back to the office after the incident. Uh, I did see the tape of the lady at the Capitol uh, door getting shot through the face. And that was a protester, not a, a police uh, government person. So if that is something like a Nazi revolution, Americans have another thing coming historically. Uh, when you get a group of some people with a bear hat, and sticks uh, and try and compare it to what happened in World War II uh, and the onslaught and creation and bloodshed related to Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. You know, the only comparison that I can make historically is that during the first uh, 40 something days of our current administration, I've never seen so many executive orders and directives come out of the executive branch at any time in American history ever, far more than uh, folks like Obama uh, or Trump or Bush or anyone else, the only comparison I can make is one Nazi party in Weimar, Germany, where you had executive orders left and right. Biden's executive orders started on the day he took office on the 20th. And I pulled up a list of just the ones that were from the first day, of which there were many, such as 100 days of masking in federal buildings and federal land. Number two, stop the withdrawal from the World Health Organization. This is a Chinese-driven and sponsored entity. And we're... To be back in it, bankrolling it, okay. Uh, COVID-19 response coordinator created extend moratorium on evictions and foreclosures, meaning we don't have to pay our rent, I guess. Extending pause on student loan payments for a long time. Uh, rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Now, I believe in protecting the environment, but again, the U.S. is all full of penalties and bankrolling it. Makes me think twice, but we're in it. Most importantly, on the first day, in my view, cancel the Keystone XL pipeline without telling our Canadian allies, by the way, they found out publicly, um, as part of a reversal of 100 Trump actions on the environment. But the Keystone Pipeline was our ticket to energy independence for the first time since we've had a combustion ever. That's gone. Rescind Trump 1776 Commission. Prevent workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Gender identity being a key thing. Now we have uh, trans transgender uh, in women's sports and in a variety of previous previously the art the entity previously thought it was women uh you know uh restrooms domestic shelters sports teams all the rest of it uh fortifies the dreamer uh, undocumented people brought in as children so that they wouldn't be expelled no matter what uh ends restriction on u.s uh 
background checks on seven Muslim-majority countries, undoes Trump expansion of immigration enforcement, halted the construction of the border wall, extends deferrals of deportation, uh, a certain ethics pledge which might have been interesting in terms of conflict of interest for executive appointees, um, directs the budget office to undo Trump regulatory approval processes, accelerates distribution of vaccination. That was a thing Trump did. All that stuff on the first day. Wow. That was day one, people. Uh, And we've had 40-something days since then, and we've had 40-something plus executive orders since then, too, doing all kinds of things. Um, Governing by executive order in an overwhelming fashion is not an American tradition. Um, That's not common. Or, in fact, it's unprecedented to this level in American history. So, like I say, I've never seen anything really much like it since 1930s Germany. Uh, And we're in month two, so I'm not sure where we'll go from there. Um, What do you think about this, L.A.? The proliferation of executive orders left and right, regardless of their content, but they're just being issued all over the map on a daily basis. Well, um, I think it goes back to what I was saying originally about the human condition, Um, when you have a political party or a president or someone in, with political power that feels that they're in the right and that they're a good person, that their ideas are good, and we just need some more of these good ideas in order to achieve some version of utopia, then by all means, implement those ideas or policies uh, by whatever means are necessary. And so here you have the executive order being used in a way that you know we really haven't seen historically speaking, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but um, you know this many executive orders this early on in presidency about um, policies that are this impactful um, are basically being seen as everything that was done by the previous human being was bad, no matter what it was, no matter if it led to energy independence, no matter if it led to stronger uh, to a stronger economy prior to COVID, no matter what the policy did. In reality, even if it was positive, it's been declared bad because a declared bad person was responsible. And so that person was bad. The new person is good. And so the new person is just going to override all the bad person's policies because they had to be bad because the person that did them was bad. And now the new person that's good needs to do the opposite just for that reason. It doesn't have really anything to do with the actual outcome. And, and this is where we've really gone off a cliff. Um, everybody on this side is bad. Everybody on this side is good. And so not only do we stop there, or we don't stop there, I should say, but we say everything that the nation has stood for in the past is also bad. And why is that? Well, because people that were in charge were bad and they were white And so they were bad because they were racist, because they had slaves. This whole idea, um, we have to reverse not only everything that Trump has done because he's bad, but we also have to reverse everything that everybody has done historically in this country because they were both white supremacist and racist um, just by the fact of who they were. And so we need to rewrite history on that. We need to do away with, we need to tear everything down, rebuild everything up because the good people are in charge now. And so this is, goes back to the basic underpinnings of liberalism, that, that people are good. So we had some bad people, but now the good people are in charge again. So really, we don't need to cover them in the media. We don't need to ask some questions. We don't need to, in fact, we'll, we'll just bring up our own fact checkers that only check what we ask them to check because we don't need to worry about actual fact checking because the good people are here. Um, uh, we don't 
need to do investigations really on things like Hunter Biden or or Joe Biden's. In fact, we don't even need Joe Biden to, to campaign. We don't need him to do that. Why should why should he even bother campaigning? Because he's a good guy and Trump's the bad guy. That's all we need to know. So out with Trump, in with Joe. We don't even really need to know anything about Joe. We don't need to care about the 47 years of him in government, what he did, what he didn't do. It doesn't really matter what he says. It doesn't really matter if he, you know, if he's creepy or touches people the wrong way or says bad things or can't remember where he is one day. None of that really matters because they're the good guys. And the bad guys have been removed. Everything that they did for the last four years is bad. Just goes back to the way people think, the way people approach. When I look on Facebook and I look at my friends on the right and I look at my friends on the left, these people can't talk about politics. These people can't really even talk to each other anymore because their way of seeing the world is so different because of because of their the origins of the way of their thinking. And this goes for Christians and non-Christians alike, for, for religious people and non-religious people. I have Christian friends on Facebook that don't see any agreement with fellow Christians. I've got Christians on the left, and I've got Christian friends on the right. And um, they have nothing in common uh, because they're, the origins of their point of view are leading them to believe that those people are bad and we're good. And so if you're a bad person, then you do bad things, and nothing that you say or do policy-wise or otherwise can therefore be good. And so it's not just an argument on policy anymore. Take abortion. We've already talked about that for a little bit. Take abortion. We're not even really talking about life or choice or any of that stuff hardly anymore. We're just screaming at each other. You're bad. If you're against um, abortion, well, then you're evil. And the other side says, well, if you're for abortion, then you're evil. And we're just trying to figure out who's, who's evil and who's not. When the truth is, that's the natural con- human condition of everybody. We're all nasty. We're all wretched. We're all bad from a natural perspective. We're born into this world, a wretched human being that has to learn goodness, has to learn obedience, has to learn humility. Um, Selfishness does not need to be learned. Pridefulness does not need to be understood. Um, The fact that I'm a liar is a natural thing. To tell the truth, uh, in most cases, is the hard thing but the right thing to do. Why do we even have this concept? Why do we even talk about good and bad? Why do we even have these ideas? Why are we even concerned with what our values are? You know, all these questions we don't ask ourselves very often, but we should because it gets to the core of who we are. And if we understand the core of who we are um, and we can come to agreement on that, then it's going to affect our political views and the way that we communicate with each other. And it's a, it plays a big role in why we are where we are today. So um, that's why I think it's important that we really have to understand what words are, what conservative is, what conservative is, what liberal is, what fascist is, what social, what socialism is, you know, all these isms, all these things that we throw around, you know, J. Scott is a Nazi. Okay, well, what was a Nazi? Does anybody really understand what, what the Nazis stood for? Uh, who Hitler was? You know, Donald Trump was Hitler. Uh, Barack Obama was Hitler. Everybody's Hitler. It's like, as soon as you want to say somebody's bad, we go right to this Hitler guy. Nobody really understands um, what who Hitler was. He was anti-Semitic. One of the big things that Hitler was was anti-Semitic. Um, who are the anti-Semites? They're not Republicans. They're not conservatives. You know, I don't know, you know, Ben Shapiro is a Jew. Pretty sure he's not anti-Semitic. He's pretty much the young, you know, from an age standpoint, uh, you know, the leader of conservatism nowadays, especially for young people. You know, most, most, People are, you know, if you ask about who's up there in the 
on the conservative side of things. Ben Shapiro is probably your biggest influencer. Pretty sure he's a Jew. And I'm pretty sure Rashida Tlaib is anti-Semite. And she's not on the she's not on the right. She's on the left. Um, so when we get into the ideas of um, what, what words are, something Rush, I go back to Rush Limbaugh about this thing. You know, words mean things. And uh, we're getting away from that in our culture because it's not about definitions. It's not about what things really are, you know, in historically speaking. It's about how do you feel about this um, and who's good and who's bad and who's better than somebody else. And if you fall on this side, then you're an evil, rotten, fascist, racist pig. And we don't even know what those weird words mean anymore because it doesn't matter. That's kind of where we are. I like this notion of the changing of the language. I've thought of language as organic. So it contours and grows. The same word doesn't mean exactly the same thing, say, if you go back a hundred years or a thousand years. But here we're changing words on a dime. And this is where uh, LA's, LA's point about relativism is really what he means. We don't have an agreed upon set of definitions for the term or the concept. So we'll just make it up as we go along. One of my favorite, most interesting uh, themes of discussion with L.A. off the record and over the years has been his approach to relativism and the problems that arise when you start pulling up the stakes in what something means and adding to it, changing it, modifying it. Maybe you can justify it in that particular case. I'm a proponent of the view that you could possibly justify it in some case or another. But when you start uprooting uh, the traditions, the whole thing can blow around anywhere. And it's not about the one change or point you wanted to make or include or upgrade. It's that you've lost the whole structure soon and it's blowing everywhere and there's no controlling over it. So now we're all Nazis, if we don't like each other, uh, and none of us, um, present company excluded, have really studied the career of fascism, you know, Adolf Hitler and the fascist movement. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is now that we seem to have changing goalposts of meanings and words and concepts that blow around in the wind, you don't like somebody and they're therefore they're susceptible to the 48 names you want to call them, always reverting to the fascist card, uh, again, concept and a way of being that is is very foreign to Americans uh, traditionally. But we are part of now what's called the cancel culture, which is why in addition to calling me a Nazi by hundreds of accounts, be they bots or otherwise, in my defense that essentially Jordan was right and Trump used the word peacefully in this so-called insurrection on January 6th, the Nazi card was played, the Martin Luther killing was played, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther is a different matter and LA will talk at great length about him at various points, I hope. But Martin Luther King Jr. was killed in 1968, right? I wasn't born yet. So how this could be on me didn't matter. Uh, that, and that wasn't their point. It wasn't about definitions, timelines. It wasn't about anything like that. It was, you said something we don't like, so the mob rules. And now we're in the midst of what we call cancel culture. I wanted to mention it because uh, one of the reasons they changed the gender of Mr. Potato Head they put advisories, so before you can listen to the Muppets, they fire the actors from The Mandalorian because she said that, you know, real fascism starts with a hatred of one's neighbor. Uh, and they're canceling people left and right. They canceled the author of uh, When, How when uh, Harry Became Sally. You can't get that on Amazon anymore. This was a point of view that said uh, transgenderism is misguided and, and uh, very likely to be harmful in many cases. So he's out. But one of the things they banned this week was Dr. Seuss. And I think Dr. Seuss is a well-known uh, writer of children's books. 
we've probably all read one. Um, and even more to the point, we've probably all read one to our ch child. I know um, President Obama has publicly read Dr. Seuss to children. I know Mrs. Obama has read Dr. Seuss to children, Mrs. Trump, and hundreds and thousands and indeed probably millions of people have read Dr. Seuss. I got a hold of a copy of one of the books that was strongly objected to um, because it encourages and promotes racism. And the book that I got a hold of, now Dr. Seuss books are the most popular selling book in America, although many of them are banned on places like Amazon and eBay. We'll talk about, we'll have occasion to talk about big tech and, and uh, mob rule, mobocracy in today's social media culture. Um, but I got a hold of this book. I have it. It's called The Sneetches. I don't know if uh, LA is familiar with that particular one, but it had been many years and decades since I had read it. And so I'm going to do this. We're going to have a, a little reading window on Up Your Dialogue because I don't know how long these Dr. Seuss books will be around. And just in case, we'll have at least one on tape. It's called The Sneetches. It's a quick read, as most Dr. Seuss books are. And I'm just going to go through kind of the image very briefly and read the words, which are also not not too long. I read it earlier um, as preparation for this uh, this episode, but Dr. Seuss has been banned by a Virginia school board and they're in pulled from places like Amazon. You cannot get these books anymore. I've seen on Amazon a copy of one of the Dr. Seuss books, uh, the one about the zoo, if I ran the zoo, and there are historical copies that you could still find, but they're somewhere between 500 and the most I found was $5,000. Uh, for this book uh, on Amazon. So you can still buy it, but they don't publish it anymore and you can't buy the everyman's version. So the Sneetches, it's two yellow birds walking down a beach. Yellow bird-like creatures. Okay, Dr. Seuss's drawings are a little weird. Um, some people like them. I was never particularly fond of it, but they kind of look like chickens to me. They're yellow. One has a green star on his belly, a little tiny like starfish looking thing, and the other one doesn't. And they're both looking at each other, you know, a little bit strangely, I presume, because one has the and one doesn't. Dr. Seuss says, now the star belly Sneetches had bellies with stars. The plain belly Sneetches had none upon ours. Those stars weren't so big. They really were so small. You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star belly Sneetches would brag we're the best kind of Sneetch on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. Whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd hike right on past them without even talking. When the Starbelly children went out to play ball, could a plain belly get in the game? Nope, not at all. You could only play if your bellies had stars and the plain belly children had none upon ours. When the Starbelly Sneetches had Frankfurter roasts or picnics or parties or marshmallow toasts, they never invited the plain belly Sneetches. They left them out cold in the dark of the beaches. They kept them away, never let them get near, and that's how they treated them year after year. My friends. Oh, then one day, it seems, while the plain belly Sneetches were moping and doping alone on the beaches just sitting there wishing their bellies had stars a stranger zipped up in the strangest of cars so now you get this weird uh, jalopy mobile with a different guy with a kind of a factory looking machine thing on the back and he shows up to town with the sneeches my friends he announced in a voice clear and keen my name is sylvester mcmonkey mcbean and i've heard of your troubles i've heard you're unhappy but i can fix that I'm the fix-it-up chappy i've come here to help you i have what you need and my prices are low and i work at great speed and my work is 100% guaranteed. Then quickly, Sylvester McMonkey McBean put together a very peculiar machine, and he said, you want stars like a star belly sneech? My friends, you can have them for $3 each. <clears throat> Just pay me your money and hop right on board. So they clambered inside. Then the big machine roared, and it clunked, and it bonked, and it jerked, and burped, 
and it brought them about, but the thing really worked. When the plain belly sneeches popped out, they had stars. They actually did. They had stars upon ours. So you enter this machine with a plain belly, and you come out with a star in your belly for $3. Then they yelled at the ones who had stars at the start. We're exactly like you. You can't tell us apart. We're all just the same now, you snooty old smarties, and now we can go to your Frankfurter parties. Good grief from the ones who had stars at the first. We're still the best Nietzsche's, and they are the worst. But now, how in the world will we know, they all frowned, if which kind is what, or the other way round? Then up came McBean with a very sly wink, and he said, Things are not quite as bad as you think, so you don't know who's who. That's perfectly true. But come with me, friends. Do you know what I'll do? I'll make you again the best Nietzsche's on the beaches, and all it will cost you is $10 eaches. So now you have the ones with the stars going into the machine and coming out with plain bellies on the picture. Belly stars are no longer in style, said McBean. What you need is a trip through my star-off machine. This wondrous contraption will take off your stars, so you won't look like Sneetches who have them on ours, and that handy machine, working very precisely, removed all the stars from their tummies quite nicely. Then, with snoots in the air, they paraded about, and they opened their beaks, and they let out a shout. We know who is who. Now there isn't a doubt. The best kind of Sneetches are Sneetches without. And of course, those with stars all got frightfully mad to be wearing a star now was frightening, frightfully bad. Then of course, old Sylvester McMonkey McBean invited them into his star off machine. Then of course, from then on, as you probably guessed, things really got into a horrible mess. All the rest of that day on those wild screaming beaches, the fix it up chappy kept fixing up sneeches off again, on again, in and again, out again. And here they show hundreds of sneeches going in and out to get their stars or have them removed. Uh, through the machines, they raced round and bout again, changing their stars every minute or two. They kept paying money. They kept running through until neither the plane nor the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was what one or what one was who. Then, when every last cent of their money was spent, the fix-it-up chappy packed up and he went. And he laughed as he drove in his car up the beach. They never will learn. No, you can't teach a screech. But McBean was quite wrong. I'm quite happy to say that the Sneetches got really quite smart on that day. The day they decided that Sneetches are Sneetches, and no kind of Sneetch is the best on the beaches. That day, all the Sneetches forgot about stars and whether they had one or not upon theirs. The end. So you've got all these yellow birds, some with stars and not. They all get into the machines to look like the other group, but then that's not good enough, so other ones go back. Eventually, the guy who's funding all this makes all the money and drives away. Uh, and a happy ending. The Sneetches all learn that they're all part of the same thing, and it doesn't matter whether they have a star in their belly or not, whatever distinctive quality. At the end of the day, they're all Sneetches and should get along. This type of book is now declared racist. Some people call Dr. Seuss Nazi. It's been banned. It's been censored. It's been shunned. If you read it at a school, the school board will take uh, significant umbrage and Dr. Seuss is no more. And yet I go back and find one of the main ones, the one about the snitches that was objected to. And it's about how we really are all the same and it doesn't matter why we should try to look like someone else or avoid looking like someone else. Let's be people in the same community of strange looking yellow birds. Have you read that one, LA? Do you know about the snitches? I've not I've not read the Sneetches book. No, I'm not familiar with that particular book. I am familiar with some others, but not that particular one. Well, now you know. Uh, the Sneetches are top on the list of what we said was liberal, but really looks like something more radical these days. And Seuss, in this particular book, was attempting to avoid divisions such as based on appearance. And now appearance is everything, isn't it? If you don't look like somebody, it's a problem. Well, one of the things I recall that Republicans did historically, was 
they put an end to legalized slavery in the United States. 1863, Republican Abraham Lincoln, then president of the Union, declared the Emancipation Proclamation. Later, this was ratified by amendments to the Constitution and other court cases, establishing um, black people were not to be slaves. They had the rights uh, to vote, and indeed, over time, increasing rights in every direction, um, and properly so. Now, we have a kind of state where the liberals, the party of inclusion, claims to be including more and more, and yet to be white is to be the wrong thing. You have to apologize for whiteness means white supremacy. It means white privilege. There are multiple types of whites and their privilege, but at the end of the day, they're all bad people. Um, and so now, based on the appearance of your skin, the tables have flipped. But the racist is now called the anti-racist. And now there is a mind switcheroonie where your racist was a bad thing and your anti-racist is the good thing, except that the anti-racist is a form of racism. And now what do you do with all these shifting words? The structure, as you've pulled up the roots of it, has blown everywhere and racist is anti-racist. Um, Antifa, the anti-fascist, operates in a brutal and fascist way with blood on the streets and violence door to door uh, throughout America in 2020 in many cities. The fascist is the anti-fascist. The racist is the anti-racist. The Nazi is the anti-Nazi. How are we to know what to make of all this? Uh, LA, help us out here. I'm a little confused. Uh, you're not the only one who's a little confused. Um, everybody is confused. The culture's confused. Uh, the government is confused. Our political systems are confused. Everything is up for confusion. So if you're confused, you're not alone. Um, and unfortunately, I'm probably not going to be able to cure your confusion on this podcast. I wish I could. I wish I could uh, throw out some information that caused all of the Up Your Dialogue listeners to be cured of um, the confusion that most likely besets them. Unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. Um, I can try and make things as clear as I can based on the way that I see them. And that's why I talk about origins so much because and the meanings of words, because you have to have a standard to go back to. You have to have something that says this is what this is. Um, as Jay Scott will attest to, I talk a lot about truth and seeking truth and trying to understand what the truth is of the matter. Um, we seem to have lost that because we don't really think that truth has any absolute quality, right? Truth is just, we just make that up as we go along, um, as Jay Scott already alluded to. And we've talked about many times in our own off-the-record conversations about the idea of truth and how, yeah, it's relative, but it's even worse than that. It's you can have your truth, I have my truth, um, and this can be you know, two truths at the same time. You go ahead with your thing, I have my thing, uh, and we don't even have a discussion anymore about who might be wrong. Uh, that would be offensive. Um, but I wanted to say something about that goes along with all this about our friend Theodore Seuss Geisel. I think I'm, I apologize to the Geisel family if I'm mispronouncing the last name. I believe that's how it's pronounced. And that is the full name of who we know as Dr. Seuss. And J. Scott just read the, uh, from, the, from, the, from one of his books, one that I'm not familiar with. But I am somewhat familiar with um, Mr. Geisel uh, and who he was and what he has been remembered for and what he is now being subjected to because of this culture that we live in where we don't really care about who Mr. Geisel was. We don't really care about anything historic about why he wrote what he wrote, why he did what he did, what his thoughts were um, at the time of his writings. None of that matters because 
He's a bad guy now. Well, he wasn't always a bad guy. Um, Mr. Geisel was um, a Democrat, a, a liberal Democrat in his political view, um, was for the New Deal, was a supporter of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, so not a professed conservative in his early years. Um, he, uh, he died of cancer in 1991 in La Jolla, California at the age of 87. His ashes were scattered across the Pacific Ocean uh, at the time of his death. And then he went on to win many awards. Um, on December 1st, 1995, four years after his death, the University of California, San Diego's University Library building was renamed Geisel Library in honor of Mr. Geisel uh, for his, the generous contributions uh, that they made to the library and their devotion for improving literacy. Then you have this National Day of Reading or something along those lines that he was actually left out of because he's a bad guy now um, when that day came around this year. Um, Dr. Seuss, uh, as, as late as, I believe, 2012, was still receiving awards uh, for his work. Um, Pulitzer Prizes, um, colleges being, you know, college buildings being named after him, social media, um, giving accolades to him, uh, certain, uh, you know, a specific day of the year being given in his honor. And all these things weren't 100 years ago. All these things were only a handful of years ago. Um, but all of his books that he wrote and the reasons that he wrote them, uh, different ones were a different thing. I think Horton Hears a Who was was done after World War II and um, for a specific, uh, to the Japanese, I believe, in response to uh, them being interned afterwards. You know, so these different things that um, there might be reasons for the books. There might be um, reasons for the words that are in the books. There might be valid reasons for why um, Dr. Seuss wrote the things that he did. And at one point for all of his work, we were handing out awards to the man. Um, But now he's bad. Now he's a bad person. Uh, We're going to burn his books. And of course, we don't take the books out to a big pile and light them on fire like, you know, they've done to books in the past. Now we just uh, we cancel them. Um, we just do away with the ability to get to them, electronically speaking. That's why the actual books themselves have been selling for so much money, because it might be the only way to get them, because they're electronically suppressed. Um, and it doesn't matter who he was. It doesn't matter what the actual books were about. It doesn't matter that these creatures in the book that Jay Scott read actually stood for good a good moral principle. It doesn't matter because Dr. Seuss must have been a bad guy. He must have been a racist and he needs to be canceled according to um, the good people who are in charge. The people, the good people who have declared themselves good, the rest of all of us bad, um, they're just looking out for us and doing the right thing, doing the good thing, which is to ban those horrible racist books uh, so that nobody, no child could actually pick them up and read them because everything that he did was banned and needs to be done away with. And it gets back to the root of things. It gets back to the origin of ideas and words. Get back, it gets back to people are good until we declare them bad. People are good and we progress toward the good. Everything that human beings are doing progresses towards the good because human beings are naturally good. Until you run into a guy like Dr. Seuss, who we thought was good, but now we understand how bad he was, and so everything that he's done is bad and has to be canceled. Um, We thought that the country that we lived in, our conservative values, um, were that the country that we lived in stood stood for a good thing. It stood for good American values. It stood for, as J. Scott said, you know, the end of racism, not racism. Um, it stood for Judeo-Christian values. Um, this is 
kind of what conservative in my era taught, uh, that the country was, was, you know, that not the people themselves, they had issues, but, but the values of the country that the country was built on that are over and above humans that transcend humans, right? Um, it's our rights are given to us by a creator. It's in the documents might not be for long, still there now, uh, these things are transcendent to us. We don't make them up as we go along. We don't make up uh, standards and truths um, for whatever we think they are today. Um, They're things that exist outside of the human condition because the human condition is corrupt and we have to look out to outside of ourselves for the answers. It's codified in the documents, founded the country, and we're to look to those things for freedom, for liberty, and the like. We're not to look to Joe Biden for whatever is good, because Joe Biden is good, because that's false. Joe Biden is corrupt. He's a human being. He's naturally selfish. He's naturally greedy. He's naturally prideful. He's naturally all these issues. We look for the answers and truths that are codified, that are transcendent. That's what the standard was. And we flipped that standard on its head because the Democrats today don't believe in that. They don't believe in transcendent values. They don't believe in absolute truth. Um, They're making it up as they go along. This is a huge problem because it leads them to say that Theodore Seuss Geisel was an evil, terrible human being that needs to be canceled. And once they declare that so, there's no going back on that. Can't even find his book on eBay. It's not, (laughs) they're not even allowing you to find it on eBay as just one person selling the book to another person in the marketplace. This is where we are. It's important to understand why we are and to have to be able to have conversations about why we are, where we are and how we got here. Um, Because the only way that we're going to get out of this and, and, you know, try and not have as much confusion as we have now. Um, Standard has to be set up, has to be erected again. It has to be adhered to. Um, For me, that's a biblical worldview. For Jay Scott, it might be a different worldview, whatever it is. Somehow Jay Scott and I have to be able to sit down and say, what is the truth of this situation? And it's not whatever Jay Scott decides it is today. It's not whatever L.A. Londi decides it is today. Jay Scott can't have his truth and I can't have my truth and have them both be true at the same time. None of this makes any kind of logical sense. None of much makes any logical sense. You know, what's a male? What's a female? Can't decide on that. It's whatever you think it is. Whatever someone decides it is in their minds. You know, we hear so much today about the science. We need to get back to the science. Well, I think that's a good place to start. We're going to get back to the science about what, what's male and what's female. I think that's pretty, pretty, you know, the biological science of that's pretty easy. And why would we ever want what is in the mind to override science and biology? Uh, it's not so much about the science, is it? It's about whatever somebody wants the science to be. It's whatever it means to them. If it means wearing a mask is bad at the beginning of COVID and now wearing a mask is good and now maybe wearing two masks is good. Well, was it wrong then? Is it right now? Nobody knows. Why has COVID been such a nightmare? Because nobody trusts anybody. Why does nobody trust anybody? Because nobody believes anybody because there's no standards. So the ideas of conservatism historically um, are being eroded. Uh, The very ideas that the nation stands for something that's, you know, values that are good. The very idea that um, we have absolute, we have absolutes, um, that we have transcendent morals, we have absolute morality, these type of things, all that's being eroded into um, the so-called progressive idea that, well, you know, everything is whatever we want it to be. And you might not think that that doesn't, that, that doesn't sound bad, but it really is pretty awful. And it's the source for all of our confusion and chaos, in my opinion, that we see today. 
So I think one of the things I want to end with is we've talked a little bit about um, what conservative, liberal, fascist, Nazi, all these terms, a little bit about their origins, a little bit about how we've gotten away from uh, specifics and standards. uh, And that's where we currently are. What I'm kind of interested in is what is the future of conservative and liberal look like? Um, now that you know we've talked about Rush Limbaugh, who's passed away, um, now that a lot of the old school conservatives are no longer with us, um, we have a, a new group of young conservatives that are coming up, um, and they have some ideas about what conservative ideas or what conservative values there or the future of conservatism is uh, for what we're, for going forward. How does it emerge out of this chaos? Is it able to withstand the attacks that is being that's being um, the attacks that are being foisted upon it now by the left um, suppression um, cancel culture as J Scott related to um, does it survive all of this and if so what does it look like um, one of the approaches that's being taken is to just remove itself as a movement from these institutions and creating their own institutions. In other words, removing it, removing itself from the dependency on social media, whether it's Facebook or YouTube, um, removing itself from media, movies, Hollywood, that type of stuff, uh, removing itself from the university and starting its own university setting. We see this in things like PragerU. We see this in uh, people starting uh, their own entertainment, starting their own podcasts, um, taking their followers and going to different platforms, this type of thing. And then there's another side that says, no, we need to keep fighting in these uh, areas and taking these areas back over instead of creating our own. Um, But it's definitely a fight that's ongoing. I just wonder where it kind of ends up with, um, you know, we saw Rush attack it in the early 90s and, you know, kind of start this whole this whole conservative movement fresh and new you know from what's from the william f buckley's of the world um this new uh form of media entertainment um rush was kind of the initial voice of all that and now you've got people like ben shapiro you've got people like um well glenn beck to some extent um starting their own networks starting their own channels starting their own um platforms um it's going to be interesting to see how it goes in in the future and how this kind of plays out uh going forward i'm just wondering uh from his perspective uh what jay scott thinks the future might hold for for such a movement yeah cloudy this future is uh, something like yoda might have told us um you know because we live in a world where up is down and fascist is anti-fascist and uh, racist is anti-racist and man is woman uh all bets are off for me. I was remembering something like this happened in the fiction of a writer I always admired, George Orwell. And in 1984, there was the Peace of Love, and which was, you know, F Camp, the Ministry of Love. I think now we have, is it a Ministry of, it's not the Ministry of Information, but some way to help us uh, become deprogrammed. A ministry, Minister of Reality, I think it is, that's being created some things like that I've heard. And in 1984, the country they were in was called Oceania. And for whatever reason, they were at war the whole time with an entity called East Asia. But then when the double 
talk of it was when you thought it was East Asia, they switched it. Now you were at war with Eurasia. And if you didn't get it right, you've spoken an untruth for which you can be punished up to and including death. Um, I think by rats eating through your face in room 101 type of thing, as I recall. Uh, it's the same, a little bit of the same thing when you can't tell what's real and what isn't in a story like The Emperor's New Clothes. Uh, this was Hans Christian Andersen, who wrote it 1837. And this emperor had hired clothiers and attendants to make him this great outfit and robe, which really was made out of nothing. So by the end of the story, the emperor gets out in front of the, his kingdom and wants everyone to remark about how grand and, and amazing this outfit is, and yet he's not wearing a thing. He thinks he is, people tell him he is, but there's nothing there. Uh, I think it's one kid at the end of that story who points to him and says, why isn't he wearing any clothes? Uh, and I feel like we're the kids in the, the new world, occasionally pointing our finger and saying, well, why isn't there no racism and anti-racism? Why isn't there no fascism and anti-fascism? Why isn't there no male when you're talking about a female? Up is down is up is down. And for me, that makes it very difficult uh, to get a foothold. I like the idea of larger spheres that Christians and non-Christians, including agnostics, could agree, uh, never despite their religious views, that killing is bad. This was the experiment of America, was to live in a country where your particular religious belief wasn't the driver of an all-encompassing state and government law that puts you down if you have a disagreement about interpretation or content. Uh, freedom of worship was the real deal. Well, we seem to be in a world where our freedoms are being circumscribed. This has to do with the Second Amendment. This has to do with the First Amendment. These are the two amendments that I know of that are under siege in today's world, among others. And when we decide we don't like somebody, he goes from, in the case of Seuss, a lauded writer and uh, beloved children's uh, creator, into the worst villain ever. So now you cannot find his book on Amazon or eBay, but you can find uh, brand new versions and editions and old editions of Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. And not that anyone's read it, but you can purchase that. But you can't get the guy that wrote the sneeches about people not distinguishing each other based on their appearance. And to me, that's a little bit uh, dicey. I remember the quote of Martin Luther King Jr., one I've always liked from his uh, I Have a Dream speech. It says, I look to a day when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. He didn't say this applied to white people or black people. He said people, when people will not be judged by the color of their skin. And here we are in 2021, judging people by the color of their skin or by their gender or by their identification of traditional heterosexuality in regards to their gender as well. Um, and so my question about what will become the new conservative, I had a professor explain the difference between conservatism and liberalism in the distinction of their grappling with the concept of change. Conservatives tend to change slowly over time. Liberals tend to change more quickly over time. So the difference is one of speed. Not that either one freezes time or does something else. It's just a measurement of speed within limits. Today's liberals self-identify as progressives. What that means to me is something pretty radical. When you're ramming through a million executive orders, closing off with barbed wire troops and tanks the capital, opening your borders to be flooded in, flooding the whole system with billions and indeed trillions of dollars of funny money that doesn't exist, cutting off your, your energy independence with the stroke of a pen on day one, 
But when you add all this stuff up and you don't know the difference anymore between a man and a woman, there isn't even science anymore. There's white science. White math insists upon a correct answer. The white science is racist. Now there's a black science. And they mess around with things like science, which for an agnostic, I have to tell you, is central or about as close to gospel as we get. And so if the scientists come down and tell you, well... Male or female is a point of view, uh, or climate change even. If you listen to the sides of the two parties, it turns out that climate change is a point of view. Everybody agrees that the weather changes. But climate, now you are having major, the auto industry of America and elsewhere in the world, telling you when they're going to stop making combustible engines. I think 2035 was the case of GM. Another company was 2030. I think maybe that was Volvo and others. Uh, and so they tell you that the combustible engine is the problem. And so you're going to get cars with batteries that we don't have the infrastructure yet. Of course, nor do we have the vehicles yet. But in any case, they don't tell you about what energy is required to construct, create a lithium battery and where it comes from. They don't tell you about how the electricity gets into your car on a daily basis. Don't ask from it. I would say, based on recent history, a Texas windmill in winter to help you get that power. Um, and they don't even mention it. So all of a sudden, we snap our fingers and we go from combustible to electrical. Well, I'm not saying that that's a wrong idea, but it's not the kind of thing that you just unplug like you did with Dr. Seuss. Uh, because you don't, because some board from Virginia, the school board, doesn't like it. And they don't like our founding fathers much either, by the way. We have the 1619 Project, and I remember in Portland, they beheaded, they tore down the statue of Washington, beheaded it, defecated it, lit it on fire and then sprayed 1619 over it because George Washington owned slaves. True, he did, uh, but he also freed them, uh, all of his own slaves, upon his death. So now the school boards are renaming George Washington school to something else. They're renaming Jefferson to something else. Uh, they're renaming Abraham Lincoln to something else because he didn't end slavery soon enough. Be damned 600,000 Americans died on the battlefield. Be damned millions of them were maimed and wounded. Be damned it was a four-year aberration in our democratic experience. Be damned what it did to the infrastructure on both sides of, this, of the line in this country. Doesn't matter. Abraham Lincoln didn't free the slaves soon enough. He was elected in 1860, and he didn't free, it until, free the slaves until 1863. Well, what was he doing? Was he just, you know, jerking around? Uh, stay tuned, because Abraham Lincoln isn't the man you thought he was. Whatever, whatever little things he was doing uh, in the couple of years before 1863. So for me, this is an open question. In my experience, in my educational training, I've learned that it's far more interesting and rewarding to ask the question that you do not know the answer to instead of the one you do. And so my question in regard to the future of conservatism, and I want LA to weigh on this, weigh in on this too, uh, is, is the future conservative a person who has to go about the business of America in terms of peace or in terms of war? That's really the ultimate question, isn't it? Future of conservatism, is it something we have to run in parallel? Do we need a separate media, a separate literary community, separate businesses, separate servers, separate infrastructure, separate people, separate cities, separate people in the different cities and have a parallel society in which we kind of wait out what's going to happen with the radical left? Or does there, in fact, um, you know, is it possible, however tragic and awful, is it possible instead, is it even possible to imagine two sides divided again up until the point of bloodshed? Um, you know, this so-called insurrection, now we believers and voters of the Donald, by the act of our voting for the Donald, may be associated with domestic terrorism and on the same level of ISIS. Again, 
if you've ever seen the beheading of Daniel Berg, a journalist, or if you've ever seen the other ISIS video of beheadings and killings, and you look at the guy with the goofy bear hat or the person sticking his feet on Pelosi's desk, and equate them as the same people. If you equate the people running up the steps of the Capitol and stroking out because they're not in good shape or breaking windows, if you equate that with the Nazi empire, how do we proceed as a country where the one side is for sure that the other side is the domestic terrorist? Is there to be war or is there to be peace? That's actually a pretty solid debate on the right. When you see certain people... Um, like um, um, the Mitt Romneys, um, the McCains, um, even the Bushes, trying to stand for like an old school type conservative, an old school type GOP, uh, that this is still a possibility. And then you have basically the Trump movement that is not seeing it. Um, which one of those sides went out? Uh, you've got You've got groups like conservative groups that are taking the Trump position. You've got conservative groups that are taking the more moderate position. Um, personally, I don't think that in this particular climate, and we've had this discussion before off the record, but I don't think in this particular climate that you can have a even a Ted Cruz be able to be the face of a conservative party. Um, I don't think you can have a George W. Bush. You certainly can't have a Mitt Romney. Um, so, you know, Donald Trump was the guy for the moment in the last four years, 2016 through 2020. Um, but he swung for the fences and lost. You could say that's due to COVID or whatever the case may be, but he lost. He wasn't able to continue his movement at least not politically. Who knows what happens in the future with that? So there's a big kind of uh, rift, somewhat of a rift, on the conservative side about what the face of the party and the direction need to be. Um, I don't know necessarily what the answer to that is as far as a political party, but I do know what I usually speak in is more uh, higher level ideas, whether it's philosophical or theological, um, because that's kind of where that's kind of where I am. It's kind of where my thought process goes to more of a high level worldview conversation. So it's the worldviews that I think went out today. I think it's convincing people that your view of the world is the proper and correct view. And I don't think that those of us on the right or those of us who are conservative can just kind of sit back and allow the narrative to be written. Um, just because of the radical nature of what's being done currently today, where people like, you know, Dr. Seuss are being canceled, uh, history is being rewritten, uh, the very institutions that the country was built upon are being torn down and, and, and thrown away. I don't think you can just sit by and let all that happen, um, because I don't think that it's a very pretty place to come back from. So I think you have to win that fight. And I think you have to win it by convincing a majority of people that a worldview where everyone that you don't agree with is a fascist or a racist is not a worldview that is tenable. It's not a the basis of a political movement that's successful. It may be in the moment, but we know that by looking at things like the French Revolution, that in the moment you might be on the top, and the next moment you may your head may be in the guillotine, uh, because these type of movements tend to eat themselves historically speaking. So I think that's something that has that has to be fought for and has to be won. Um, right now, we're not doing such a good job of that. Retreating to our separate corners, unless you're going to have separate, separate entities, separate constitutions, separate um, countries, uh, I, I don't think that that's necessarily tenable. So my thing is, I think that truth wins. I think that 
chaos and confusion lose. And right now, the Democrat Party is the party of chaos and confusion. Um, I'm not saying that the Republican Party or conservatism has it all together, has all the answers for all of society's woes, but it's not the party of confusion. It's not the party who questions gender. It's not the party who throws away Judeo-Christian values. It's not the party of abortion. Um, it's not um, the party that wants to tear down the fabric of the country and throw out the the founding fathers and George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. It's not the party that supported rioting through America uh, over the last two years. It's not the party that wanted to lock everybody down and you know take away their freedoms through COVID. So regardless of if you're listening to this podcast, regardless of what party you stand on, regardless if you're a Democrat or Republican, or if you're conservative or liberal, or if you're a capitalist or socialist, um, it doesn't that doesn't matter largely. It's not the end all be all. You take a step back farther up from that and you say to yourself, does truth really matter? Um, does individual liberty matter? Uh, does individual freedom matter? Um, does you know truth matter as a transcendent value? You know, do these things that lead to your political view, does your worldview line up with reality or the way things really are? Or are you just living in a fantasy world where utopia is going to come around if the right government's in charge? I mean, I think rational people are probably able to step back and, and just have a conversation about these things and be able to come to some logical conclusions that, you know what, biologically speaking, it's a fact that males are males and females are females. And we can stop fooling around and kidding ourselves about these things. We can stop trying to make up our own reality because we can see where that's getting us. It's getting us into a whole lot of mess. Um, regardless if you think um, what you think, what your political stance is, I don't think we can say that we're in a real great place in our country. Whether you think it's for whatever reason you think that that's the case, I don't think too many people are going to say, you know what, our government's in a really good place. I can really trust the government nowadays. Gee, um, I really like how things are going. I think things are going swimmingly in society and culture. Uh, I don't think that's the case. So when you see it that way, you know, what kind of changes need to be made? What kind of uh, conversations do we need to have? I think it's one about worldview. I think it's one about a big picture, not just about you're a fascist or you're a Nazi or you're a racist or whatever, calling people names, character assassination. Um, it's about having a real conversation with with your neighbor about the state of things and what changes need to take place. Um, it's about what's true and what's not. Don't abandon that. We can't abandon that as conservatives or liberals, uh, not, you know, abandoning the search for truth. Um, well, you know, a transcendent truth. As far as long as we abandon that, uh, we're in we're in trouble as a country, as a people. We really have to get back to what a standard is. Setting what setting that standard up and trying to follow it the best that we can. That's what we did for countless centuries. We didn't always come out with the right answer. You know, we didn't always love our neighbor as ourselves uh, because the good book tells us that we don't get that right most of the time. We're human beings and we're corrupt. We're not good. We're we're bad, naturally. Uh, we have to be saved in a way from ourselves. It's what the book says. Uh, we've gotten away from that completely and uh, we're suffering the consequences for that. And we have to win that battle, I think. We have to not back away from that type of fight. We have to continue to fight against cancellation, suppression. We have to make our voices heard, and um, we have to stand for truth. And I don't think that we can shy away from all that, because if we do, uh, and like the case of abortion, if we allow the argument 
to be changed and then the narrative to be set. What was it? Since 1973, Roe v. Wade, we've been going down this abortion thing for that many years and we're, and we're farther away from winning it now than we have been in the past because we've surrendered the narrative. We've surrendered the arguments. We've not been able to make the case and we've lost the battle in that area. And now we're losing the battle in many other bedrock areas. And the result of that is cancellations. Um, People being seen as good and bad, no longer fighting over policy anymore. We're fighting over who's a racist and who's a Nazi. So I think that we have to take the battle. Uh, We have to fight. We have to be heard, demand that we be heard. And hopefully we can get to the point again where we can convince a majority of Americans that they're not racist, that their country isn't terrible, um, and that Dr. Seuss shouldn't be canceled. And then maybe we can uh, read about the bird creatures again and tell the stories to our kids like we did for many years. you know, up until the cancellation of, of those things. Um, am I positive about the idea that we can make this happen? Not right now in the moment, but, um, you know, historically speaking, we have this pendulum effect. I think that we, we can probably convince people that rational, logical thinking, regardless of your Christian or agnostic, is something that we can agree on is possible again. And this confusion can be uh, can be lifted. I'll make a final remark on this episode and topic. I'm glad Up Your Dialogue is back and rolling. We intend to make many more episodes in forthcoming days and weeks. Mm, but my question was about war and peace. And the reason why I raise it is because historically we have an example of when peace didn't work out in America. The U.S. Civil War, um, a truly horrific event from which we must learn And in terms of a worldview, I return again to the words of Martin Luther King Jr., who said, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. And so I ask you, which is it to be? When the two sides look at each other, can they have a dialogue? Can they appear their dialogues as we do on this show? Or do they have to perish together as fools? If those are our two options, if Martin Luther King Jr. was right, we have two roads we can go down, brothers or fools, one living, the other perishing. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'd rather live. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I would rather live as brothers and sisters. Perishing as fools is the thing to be avoided. And so we should do all we can to steer it toward the one direction as opposed to the other. This is where democracy comes in handy. Dialogue serves us well, and tolerance serves us even better than anything. Not everybody has your same worldview, but do we live in a society where different worldviews can coexist? On Up Your Dialogue, we've had many discussions through a lens Christian and through a lens agnostic. And after many episodes, I think it's fair now to say, as we knew it would, LA and I have been friends for many years, regardless of the podcast, but we've demonstrated publicly how this is done. This is what Up Your Dialogue looks like, a respect and tolerance for another person's position, a willingness to hear them out, and to want them to express their position in the most accurate way they can, in the way that the result intends what they meant to the most faithful way, so that we can learn from each other and establish bonds in order to live together as brothers. I do not want us to perish together as fools. And in 2021, when up is down, when the emperor has no clothes, uh, this is a frightening time. And to me is the closest to the two camps not getting along peacefully since the Civil War, certainly since the 60s. And I think we should strive to work harder as we 
needed. Instead of looking at the other person and saying, you're a Nazi pig, we can do better than that. Calling the other guy a racist or denigrating him, indeed, because of his race, no matter what it may be, or calling the other guy a Nazi or denigrating his political affiliation, no matter what it may be, isn't the way of living together as brothers. And it's not the way of living together as equals, as friends in the same country the same boat. So whatever we do, we should restrain ourselves from looking at the other guy and screaming some horrible epithet. We can do better than that. But now I feel like we live in a time when we must do better. We're running out of options. Too many names have been called. Too many riots have been had. Too much bloodshed has gone down. Uh, so keep that in mind with, with that quote that I referenced. We must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. And so I ask you, America, I ask our audience, which is it going to be? Thank you for tuning in to our latest episode of Up Your Dialogue. Yeah, which is it going to be indeed. Um, the future is yet to be written on that. Hopefully it is a peaceful one. Uh, but whatever it is, whether it's peaceful or not, whether we get to a more peaceful time in the future or more violence ensues, um, of course, like Jay Scott said, we hope we all hope for the peaceful route. But it still has to be a route where, regardless of peace or violence, that truth wins the day. Um, in the Civil War, there was much violence, uh, primarily over the truth that slavery was wrong. And it was stated so, mostly by people with Judeo-Christian values that saw all men created as equal. An institution of slavery that had permeated every spot on the globe for millennial uh, was ended in in, in practice here in this country by people with Judeo-Christian values as their standard. And that's the standard that needs to be fought for. We don't want to see it happen with bloodshed as in the Civil War. But in that time period, truth won the day. And as rotten human beings, sometimes it has to come to the worst of things in order for the best of things to remain. Hopefully we can move forward as brothers and sisters, um, as Americans, without that type of violence. Um, I think that we can, but we have to be able to communicate. We have to be able to, uh, regardless of our worldview positions, we have to be able to have a dialogue. We have to respect one another as human beings, endowed with rights by a creator. Otherwise, we're just making this up as we go. And when human beings make things up as we go, it gets pretty nasty. It doesn't end well. Uh, and America is not going to be any different if we don't get back to the values that set us apart um, in the first place. And so with that said, uh, we hope you enjoyed this edition of the Up Your Dialogue podcast. As Jay Scott mentioned, you can find us on Twitter, um, uh, hopefully you, you can find us there and engage with us a little bit. Um, we do hope to, we hope to be doing more of these, uh, in 2021, um, if time permits and viruses go away, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, Jay Scott's able to get his book published and, um, we all look forward to that, um, being able to read that, uh, endeavor that he's slaved over for recent years. Um, so, if things can get back to normal, we hope to be doing some more of these. We cover topics from wide ranging, not just on political things, but we've done topics on movies. You can see some many of our dialogues um, online at upyourdialogue.com. So you can see us there once again on, on the Twitter. Um, send us a message. Tell, tell us what you thought. Think about it. Give us your feedback. Um, and uh, we look forward to speaking with uh, speaking to each other and talking to all of you again soon on another episode of the podcast. Till then, stay safe. Take care.